podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome, uh, welcome along. Uh, my name is Richard Shaw, host of Forty Twenty Live, uh, sometimes Rugby League's number one podcast in the UK. Most of the time, it isn't. Uh, a great panel with us uh, tonight. Phil Kaplan on the end. What was I've, I've read the magazine on the way in, and I've forgotten your title. Managing editor was it editor at large? That's him. Um, rugby League prostitute. Rugby League prostitute. Mercenary. No, mercenaries get paid. <laughs> Definitely not mercenary. So, so Tony Hannon, you're the editor at large, stroke managing editor, stroke. Yeah, well, look, we've got it the wrong way around, really, because Phil's the one who's usually at large, and I'm the one doing all the the computing and get putting it to print. So. Did you put the the good joke about Jacob Rees-Mogg going to Russia in my column this month? Probably. Good. Yes. So when they come for me, was it was it really funny? It was better than anything I remember. Yeah, then it was me, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, next, another Tony, Professor Tony Collins. Uh, writer, historian, anything else I need to add? Uh, no. Podcaster. Podcaster, yeah, yeah, yeah. After a, a, a hiatus, I'm back on the podcasting front. There are not enough podcasts. Uh, from the Yorkshire Evening Post, Peter Smith. Anything else I need to add to your... No. no? <laughs> <laughs> the editor of Rugby League Live, Matthew Shaw. You haven't got a podcast or a video no, series or anything? No, we occasionally do Twitter. Twitter spaces, which is a new phenomenon. Yeah, I need to jump onto that one. Um, so we're here to talk about local sports reporting, but before we do, uh, some very sad news broke this morning about the death of Dave Hadfield. Uh, oh, well, Phil, you, you knew him better than uh, I did, so you can certainly tell us more about him. I, I think we all did. Um, I've seen the word Diane used a lot. I think that's right. There's a whole generation of people that grew up reading his stuff and... Um, privileged enough to have been with him in press areas and on social occasions somebody we all looked up to I think his writing ranks with any of the great sports writers you know, Hugh McIlvenny or um, John Arlott was a poet I think Dave was in a similar way for Rugby League but <coughs> Tony and I were just fortunate enough to we also publish six of his books across a, a range of subjects clearly Rugby League was one of them but his love of folk music and uh, he got a bus pass at the age of 63 and did a did a tour of, of England which almost made him the Bill Bryson of Rugby League as well. I, I think there are people here who will all have great memories of him. The one that I think we'll all share is that his craftsmanship. To be near him in a press box when you're frantically making as many notes as you can and to see him with the minimum amount in a small notebook and then ring in the most beautiful copy um, to see that art at work was, was a privilege and I'm sure other people across the panel have got equally strong and fond memories of it. I, I know Tom would have been with him in, uh, in certain exciting and exotic locations as well. Yes, I once watched a game with him in Rochdale. Um, <laughs> no, but yeah, you're right, Phil. I mean, everybody in rugby league's got um, a great deal of fondness for Dave. Just a smashing bloke anyway, leaving aside the writing and everything. It's just such good fun to be around. All the memories, such an, an adventure of a life that he had. Um, and basically, it, what sort of added to him was the fact that he'd never learned to drive, so you were having to give him lifts up and down the land all over the place. And so, consequently, you get to know somebody really well when they literally sat next to you on long distances. I remember one time staying... Uh, we went down to Swansea. I can't remember what the international was, but it was around sort of 2,000 mark wasn't the World Cup though um, and we went down to Swansea and it somehow persuaded me to stay overnight in a pub called the King's Head in Usk 
because it was beautiful, he said, and it did really good beer and everything, but he could do that, you know, he, he didn't want to go straight back home, so therefore I couldn't either, even though it was my car and I was doing the driving. So he had that about him, and he's, but you didn't want to go home, because he, he would just sit there and he would tell you tales from Papua New Guinea and Australia, New Zealand, Bolton, you know, just just an amazing, amazing individual, and such, such a talent, uh, as Phil says there, just his writing was just something to aspire to. And I think that for all of us, certainly influenced me without question, and I'm sure I did other people as well on here, and I know he did. Um, because he wasn't, all right, he'd, he'd grown up in rugby league. I mean, he, he used to like to sort of boast how he played prop for Blackpool, didn't he, at one point? Um, a couple of matches. Um, and he was, he was sort of grounded in the real background of it, the northernness of it. But he always, it looked further afield as well. So he could see that rugby league, all right, it's hard was in the north of England, but it could go far and wide, wherever that might be. Um, one of the books that Phil's talking about is A History of University Rugby League, for example. He, he always looked at the bigger picture, and the most important thing is it was so funny. It could not be helped but be funny. Just about every sentence was amusing. Uh, it's just an incredible character, and I think, I know I'm going to miss him, I know other people will miss him in the game, and Rugby League will certainly miss him. There will never be another Dave Hadfield. Yeah, yeah. I remember the time he told his haunts desk um, at the Independent that he was in his porch and they thought he said Porsche. <laughs> and this, is, this is Dave who couldn't drive. <laughs> Where are you? I'm just in my porch. All right, lovely car. Strange. I think he'd have been a lot more famous if he'd covered a different sport. Um, if he'd been a football or a rugby union or a cricket man, I think he'd have been a household name. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> rugby league doesn't get the attention it deserves. But um, it gets the amount of attention it gets because of people like Dave. Without people like Dave, it, it just it wouldn't feature on the um, the sporting landscape at all. And he's the best rugby league writer I've ever come across. And as everyone keeps saying, a really, really top bloke as well. Really nice guy. I think the other thing that he had as well is that he was a great rugby league writer w talking about the game, but also he had, he had the ability to relate the game to wider society. And I think if you read those up and over and the... I can't remember what was in Down and Under. Down and Under. You read those books, and actually, they're really interesting just from a rugby point of view, but they're a snapshot of, society, of British society and Australian society at that time, and you can get such a lot out of those books, even if you're not interested in, in rugby or sport, because... He's telling about the society and how, uh, how rugby fits into that society and what it represents. And to be able to do that, you know, it's a, it's a, it takes a rare talent and a rare uh, awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world. And because of that, we, we were saying this before we started, almost irre well, irreplaceable, not almost, he is irreplaceable. Yeah, he is, because the way that... Uh, I, I, you would have never replaced Dave Hadfield anyway. Um, the, the talent that he had... Um, and the way that he just made everything so humorous and relatable but the way that the, the, the world of the media is going now there isn't no no one is, is taught to be Dave Hadfield either which really is a loss to the profession um, and says more about where the profession is heading than it does about Dave Hadfield as a writer I, I think the other thing is the essence of today is about why you should always go to the back page first rather than the front page that's what has been the basis of local and national sports journalism for those of us that love it and the Rugby League World magazine as was when Dave was a columnist 
you always started at the back page where his column yeah. was. It, it was glorious writing. It was perceptive. Um, it was different. It showed you that there was a different way of approaching the writing about sport. Um, and, and clearly, I, I just think we're never going to replace something like that. And that is something that was a staple of local journalism. He came from the, the Blackpool Gazette. Um, and that's what we'll miss as much as seeing him around ordering six pints with five minutes to go before closing time. Um, obviously, somebody who's never going to be forgotten, Dave Hadfield. Um, local sports reporting is what we're here to talk about tonight. Uh, Professor Tony Collins. Now, when, when did it start? Well, sorry, I'm gonna, I, I've, I've prepared for this earlier on, so I'm probably glad so I know you what I'm talking about. Week, I'm um, it goes right back to the beginnings of newspapers, and I think if you haven't seen the exhibition downstairs about newspapers, go and see it, because that will give you a sense of when newspapers started and why they arose and why they became so important. And first daily papers from like 1702, the Daily Current, first ever. And one of the things that they always did, they had sport in, because sport... In the very early days, basically the sports that they had was in 1700s, cricket, boxing, horse racing. And they, they, quick, and they developed at the same time as newspapers were developing. So you get that relationship, interrelationship, they're both dependent on each other. The newly developed sports needed uh, the papers to publicise them and to draw attention to them. The papers needed sport, A, because they paid for adverts, but also because they provided copy and content. And in, in a sense, you can see what was happening then, that they wanted sport and they wanted the, the gossip and the you know, day-to-day happenings in sport, not just the matches. In a very small way, it's exactly what goes on today with satellite TV, Sky Sports News and you know, 24-hour rolling news. They need, sport as a, as a, they need sport for that content. And so from the very earliest days, sport and the newspapers was intertwined. And then when you get the sort of explosion of football and rugby in the 1860s, 1870s, newspapers become even more important. And because at that time, you, people, there's more and more people who are literate because education becomes better after 1870. There's no tax on newspapers, which they used to be. And again, you can see this downstairs, that taxes were removed from newspapers. So everybody could buy one, everybody could read one. And the new newspapers, the local newspapers, depended on sport to such an extent that they, um, a lot of them sponsored local cup competitions. So in, in, in Yorkshire rugby, in, by the time it gets to the 1880s, you've got the Wakefield and Ponty Express Cup for local teams, you've got the uh, Wharfdale and Airedale Observer Cup, and you've got the whole Times. So local newspapers feed off sport, and that, obviously, because they're demanding more coverage, you want, um, they need... Uh, journalists, and at first, the first local sports journalists weren't journalists at all. They were just pe- people associated with the club who'd send in reports. So, if you go back and try and research your club in the 1880s, 1890s, if you didn't have someone on the committee who could write or knew someone at the newspaper, then you probably weren't going to get very good coverage. And again, as it became increasingly important, uh, that's when ge- actually people were in- employed full time to work on on sport. Uh, and you get some famous ones like um, uh, Yorkshire Post, A.W. Pullin, old Ebor, who worked on rugby and cricket, 
And then after in 1895, he denounced the Northern clubs for breaking away from the wonderful amateur rugby union. And he said, amateurism is at the heart of our game. That's the most important thing. And then when Leeds City were formed, the form the forerunner of Leeds United in 1905, he's on the board of a professional football team. So there's a bit of, as usual, there's a bit of a double standard there. Um, and also, by that time, you get journalists who are actually admin, sports administrators. So the editor of the Athletic News, which is the big weekly newspaper published in Manchester, was also the secretary of the Football League. And a rugby league example that's similar in Australia is that Harry, the famous Harry Sunderland, or infamous, depending on your point of view, Harry Sunderland was a journalist on the Brisbane Telegraph for decades, but he was also the manager of Kangaroo Toes to Britain. So he was, he was managing the to- toes over here. At the same time, he's sending reports back. Um, but that was very common, that, that journalists would be involved in clubs or in administration of sports as well as providing reports. So local sports reporting and sport and local newspapers have always been intertwined they've always been part and parcel of the same thing and so when people say oh the media's got too much influence or the media's distorting the game it's always done that and you know although the form changes it went from newspapers to radio to tv to satellite tv and now it'll be social media although the form changes the relationship between sport and the media at local and national level is always the same clubs trying to control the narrative they never do that today you write your own narrative in the 1800s. <laughs> that, that's the, the, the potted history of how we got away. Of course, what we haven't mentioned yet is something that used to be around that isn't around, is the, 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 the newspaper you get after matches, the green, yeah. the pink ones, the, whichever part of the country you were, which have, have completely died away now, but were a staple for many years. Oh, yeah, I mean, again, that was one, because sport became so important, it was the first local Saturday night papers came out, I think the first one was 1882 in Birmingham, because Birmingham was a big, big football city at the time. And by, by the time you get to 1890, every town has got the green and all the pink and Saturday night sports special. And, and as you say, I remember, um, well, everybody remembers the local one, but I remember the, the whole Daily Mail, green, the green mail that came out Saturday night. It was full of the most amazing stuff about not only national sport and the professional teams and all, but, you know, the, the details of local pigeon racing clubs and, you know, people complaining about what one pigeon racing club had done to another... And so it's a kind of social history of sport. It's just brilliant. Pigeon racing online, mate. You should fix uh, that. Are, are you too young to remember the... I can confirm that I am. I'm afraid. I'm sure my age. <laughs> I remember we used to have to queue up in Bradford. We, we had the pink um, on a Saturday night. The Yorkshire Sports, to give it its proper title. Um, we used to have to queue up at Bar Avenue and news agents for my dad to get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There was always a queue forming, and what used to happen is the, the TNA vans, because it was printed there, would sort of rock up at, at the given time, and the bloke would come in, throw it, throw this bundle in, and then scoop off because he had the next place to get to. Do you ever get there too late when they're all sold out? That happens to me a few times. No, it's around the streets with that paper, really. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was too frightened to, not to get a copy. But. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it's easy to look back on things like that with nostalgia um, sort of clouding your vision, but it was a great thing. I, I mean, you just don't need it now, do you? It's, it's all there. You can follow it point by point through a game, but at the time there was a, that certainly a high excitement yeah, about yeah. that arriving. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because we talk about change and no doubt people will be able to give an insight under the deadlines he works at at the moment, but 
And again, it's probably a, a message that's got lost a bit in the mists of time. But we used to go to Headingley on a Saturday afternoon, walk into town, and as you stood at the bus stop near Lewis's to get the bus home, the green post would be there. Yeah. And you'd be reading about, all right, a very detailed first half and a pretty sketchy second one, and you'd be looking in the, the stop press column for the final scores of some of the games. But the pressure that guys are under now, you wonder how in those days, with the technology that they had, which was literally phoning in copy and getting it manually set and getting a paper to a street corner almost by the time the crowds were coming away from the games, that, that's pretty astonishing. So for everything that's changed, some things are still the same. How do you think that's for you, Peter, in, in, in terms of your career? What, what was local sports reporting like when you started compared to today? Um, it's, it is very different, obviously, because the internet has just revolutionised journalism at all levels, including local and including sports journalism. Um, the first paper I wrote for was the Barnet Press in North London, and um, I covered Barnet FC for them for, for a while on a sort of ad hoc basis, and Stan Flashman was the chairman. I don't know if anyone... <laughs> Anyone remember Stan? Tickets out. Yes, yes. They were interesting times. Um, But in those days, that was the the late 80s, the local newspaper was still probably the best way to get your news about um, your local club. And that has changed to a large extent because the clubs have now, with the internet, they've taken it over and, and they will produce their own version of the news. All the clubs have obviously got the websites um, and the Twitter accounts and social media, and they're giving their own spin on, on everything. But that's very different to what we do. It's, it's, um, it's an official version, a sanitised version. And, and I've had various sports editors who, who will tell you that the, the best news are really the stories that never get, never get printed. Um, and those stories, are, are, you see less and less of them nowadays because of the, the dominance of, of the club media and club media departments. And, it, and it's difficult for journalists on newspapers, I think, to, um, to take a fresh approach, really, because the clubs obviously have a, have, um, a head start on you because they're they're producing news about themselves. If you were to write in a, a newspaper about your own family, you would obviously you would get the exclusives. So it's difficult. So you have to look for for different types of um, types of reporting. It's not so much the match reporting now, although obviously that's a, that's still a big part of it. But um, people tend to prefer to read online shorter versions of, of stories. So you'll see a lot of things like. Um, what we learned about Leeds, Leeds Rhinos from this week's game with five points rather than an in-depth um, considered article just because people tend to have less time to read it and they will read bullet points in an article a lot more than they will an in-depth article. It's not as much fun to write, obviously, and I don't think it's as much fun to read, but that's just the way things are going mm-hmm. at the moment. You, you look back, as Tony was saying, the, the newspapers from 100, 120 years ago... The, the detail yeah. in them is just absolutely yeah. staggering. I've, I've just no idea how the guys 
in those days did it to get that much detail yeah. into the paper and so quickly. But nowadays, there's I think there's there's less focus on maybe on the detail. Um, trivia has become a lot more important, I think. Um, there is still room for um, for quality journalism, but it has to run alongside um, stuff that will get people's eyes on eyes on the website and eyes on the paper. I don't want to use the word Matthew, but it's clickbait, isn't it? I think I think the term clickbait um, can be generalised sometimes because I don't think there's a journalist in the history of time who's done an article with the intention of not getting people to read it. So, you know, I think throughout time, what is clickbait? For me, clickbait is when you produce a headline maybe that's very misleading to get people to click it. I think sometimes that can be mis misinterpreted and people believe that if you write a, a story that maybe isn't of interest to them or they don't agree with, that that is clickbait. Um, what I would say is there are a lot of subtle techniques that are now used that wouldn't necessarily, if I showed you them, you would not say is clickbait, but actually is clickbait just in a very very subtle way. Um, but ultimately, the, the way that the, the profession is going now and becoming more web, web-based, as it, as it is gradually, um, it's becoming a numbers game. And that's probably largely because it's easier to view the numbers now and to, and to have that in front of you than it was with the pa- obviously the papers you have the paper sales but what was what was selling what was not well now it's a lot easier to see so the the push towards clicks is it's much easier for people to target now um, the threat is that there is there is a push where some publications just become so obsessed with numbers that they are willing to sacrifice their integrity to get the clicks. Um, and I think if we talk about local sports reporting and we talk specifically about rugby league, that is probably an issue. Um, not everywhere, not everywhere, but there are certain um, websites that maybe we shall not name. Um, some would probably say they're my websites, but you know, <laughs> um, there are some websites that are going so down that route that they're actually they're actually damaging the rest of the competition. Um, because they're so misleading, but people read it because they're gullible. It's just the, the horrible truth of it. People are gullible. I'm going to put on some T-shirts. <laughs> you say it's clickbait, though, but as as Matt mentions, the thing, the difference between newspapers and the internet is you can tell exactly what people are reading yeah. on the internet. Of detailed analytics that can tell you exactly how many people are looking at a particular story at a particular time for how long, whether they'll click onto another story on the website, what that story is, um, say how long they'll read it, whether they'll come back to the website. And you you give people what they want to to a very large extent. I know the sort of stories that will attract um, attract a lot more readers than the ones that don't. Things like transfer speculation do very well. Um, injury updates, because people want to know who's going to be playing at the weekend, that sort of thing does very well. Um, something I've been doing recently online is looking back at um, Leeds Academy teams Leeds Rhinos Academy teams from sort of 20 years ago or, or around then and what happened to the players and did they go on and, and make a career in the game or did they drift out of it and those do those do very well 
So it's we're reacting to what people want to read to a large extent as well. Um, I think what I do is a little bit different to Matt because I write for a newspaper <laughs> as well as um, as the internet, and some things that that people like to read in the newspaper won't go so well on the web. But um, that's that's one thing about the internet is you can tell what people are interested in and what they're going to read and what they want to read. And, and just to pick up on that, as we talk about local sports reporting, I, I work on in an office and I've got two screens in front of me. Not at all times, I will have a, a piece of software that shows me exactly how many people are on our content. It breaks it down onto how many people are on each article. It tells me how long they're engaging with the article. And then we, we produce a newsletter two, three times a day and everyone gets an open rate, um, a click to open rate. So we, we have all these statistics that tell us exactly what people want to read. So ultimately... I know a lot of people don't like the way modern journalism is going, and I completely see the point as well, but ultimately, the stuff that we produce is, we do it because the, the facts tell us that that's what they want to read, and it's, so what do you do? You, you simply, rightly or wrongly, and I'm with Pete, I don't like writing a lot of the stuff that, that we write, but it delivers, it delivers for the company, so that's why we do it. I think one of the significant differences is about breaking news. Because again, going back to the days when you, you got your green post as you went home, every lunchtime we would look forward to what was going to be um, in the evening paper. And the paper would have been rewritten five, six times during the course of the day. So when you walked past um, the cellar on the street corner, um, you know the vendor would have um, a, 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 an indication of what was in the paper. And if it said big rugby transfer, your first indication was that's where you got the news from. And, and nothing can operate in that way anymore because partly, as Pete was saying, it's the clubs that determine what news comes out and when it comes out and how it comes out. But the clamour now is not to read it in the paper. Therefore, the function of the paper has to move on and be, and be different. Um, but, yeah, I used to love you know running home from school and thinking there might have been a report coming from Australia about the Great Britain team who was touring over there because you wouldn't know about it if somebody hadn't written two paragraphs from Wide Bay which you had no idea where somewhere like that was or the tourists had beaten Riverina and that was the only way you could find out A, if the, the guys that you followed had played had they scored, what was the score um, and it all came through the local paper um, and we sort of lost that and I get a bit nostalgic for that maybe but uh, just an indication of how things it's not necessarily about breaking news anymore it's about eliciting opinion it, it's interesting that because I um, obviously work for League Express which for those of you who don't know a weekly uh, rugby league trade newspaper and there was, there was still almost an attitude of, of trying to keep that but it, in the modern world it just didn't it didn't work so we we would try and hold stories till a Sunday evening which is when the, the paper came out and uh, the amount of stories that we would we would lose because we tried to stick to this principle of doing it and then because of the web we just got we just would would lose it it was crazy and I think it's admirable that there is still that nostalgia and people still want that and I think it's great but it just it, you're just going to suffer um, as a consequence um, you, 
you all, you've mentioned the breaking news as well. I think what, what's interesting is there still is a little bit of structure that people try to stick to in that, again, because you've got all these statistics, you can see exactly when your most popular times on your website are. So for us, uh, between six and seven, it's always popular when people are waking up. This is lunchtime when people are probably on a lunch break and coming home in rush hour if they're on the, on the train or, or what have you. So you always try and keep your stories to those times, but where, but obviously it's a constant balancing act of, will someone else have this? Is this going to save? The club going to do it? So on, and so forth. It's it's an absolutely it's a, it's a really difficult it's a really difficult environment for people to work in nowadays. I think. I think you're sort of you're also looking at maybe a lot of romance around it all because I think one of the things with with sport. Uh, just in general is it's all about romance and excitement and that's why people get so wrapped up in the nostalgia of it so most of us on here are old enough to remember sort of listening to cricket from Australia under the bedclothes and all that sort of stuff which of course now you don't have to do because it's on the sky and it's all live and everything so and that goes the same with the written media as well because we're obviously just been talking about uh, factual things the actual what's being said uh, rather than the way it's being said, you know, just to throw back to Dave, for example, it wasn't just about giving you the facts, although you got the facts. It was about how they came across. And obviously, with online stuff, there's not so much room for that. I mean, people admirably try the long read approach, don't they? But but more often than not, I would say sports journalism online is consumed uh, on a on a factual basis, so things that you want to know, and in as precise and straight to the point way as possible, which is what everybody's been saying. Um, but it would be nice, I think, to sort of try and encourage somehow or other. I mean, we do with our magazine, don't we? With Forty Twenty, the idea of longer reads again and reading just for the pleasure of it, really. So it's not just that you're learning something you didn't know, which is always nice, um, but it's just the, the sheer enjoyment of the written word, that sort of thing. Um, that, now, that's a hopelessly romantic thing for me to say, but that's what I'm getting mm-hmm. at, really. That sport is wrapped up with romance. So it would be nice if we could find a way somehow. Uh, to keep that sort of spirit alive, I think it will come back to it to a degree. Um, I think a lot of it's cyclical. I mean, you look at the, the the music industry and and how that's evolved, and then you know vinyls come back and, mm. and become popular again. I, I think craft beer. You, you, yes, you, yeah. You're gradually seeing across local. I mean, the, the athletics are an interesting concept, but that's a one of the better examples where people will pay for that for longer longer form reads and you do see uh, independent uh, paywall websites now coming up that are providing uh, long reads and I think it, I do think it will gradually come back but at the minute the the focus is so heavy on pure sheer numbers that you can never really get that um, I, I remember writing a piece about this about, about two years ago now um, and I did what I consider one of my best pieces of of work in terms of actual pure journalism, um, but I'm looking at the numbers and it did rubbish. Uh, and I, I spent I spent hours on it. I spent hours getting all the info, ringing people, verifying it, so on and so forth. And in the same, um, so at League Express we put stuff out all at the same time on a Sunday evening. So that went out, and then I had some absolute throwaway transfer line that I did not care for, but you know it had it outperformed it four clicks to one over a big scale so it's like and it, you know it took five minutes to write yeah. so, and, and the problem you've got is going back to the audience if that's what people want people aren't going to invest the time 
to write these great pieces when they don't they don't yeah. ultimately I suppose what I'm trying to say is the the audience are partially to blame for the yeah. way it's gone rather than the actual journalists yeah. and it's the way you talk I mean I went to uni quite recently um, and we we did do you know feature writing but you were, the, the key principles that were taught throughout it was your first line is your news you mm. do this you do this you write 300 words and you're off yeah. that's it that's what, that's what people are taught now yeah. That's the interesting thing about the changing role of the journalist, um, which is why I think it's important to have Pete on the panel because um, I'm lucky enough to sit next to him most games. We, we travel together to matches. The pressure that he is now under to produce not only the words but pick the pictures, design the page, to have it done almost before the game is finished to have a final paragraph that encapsulates what's happened before you actually know what's happened. I think it, that's the bit that the readers don't see. Um, I mean, again, you know, the best person to tell you how it's changed is, is Pete himself, but I've seen over the 20-odd years that he's been doing it, that the pressure on him as a journalist to provide the copy within the time frame that the newspapers now need the time frame, the fact that the, the deadlines have come forward so much that you used to maybe have until... 10.30 to, to get your final copy in. You, you probably had time to do a rewrite while you were at the ground. Now you're almost filing, trying to second guess what the outcome of a game is going to be and set the page. I mean, I, I think that for, for people that, that don't see that at, at the coalface, that, that is a fascinating way that the, the even the, the accumulation of news and the way it's presented to the audience is massively different than it was probably, what, five years ago? I, I can actually remember, because I used, like you, I used to edit Rugby League World magazine, and, and I actually remember bringing a feature into Rugby League World. It must have been, uh, when was I there, about 2004, something like that, five, something like that. We had a feature which was called, um, it was basically about websites, club websites. So, And I can remember doing the very first one, because Wigan had just started a website, and that was actually that made about three pages, the fact that they'd started a website. And that's not that long ago, is it, really? Or maybe I'm just getting old. It <laughs> doesn't seem that long ago. And so it, it just shows you that with the pace of change has just been immense. So, as, as Matt says, things probably will go around in, in a circle. And you, and you get similar sort of debate with the music journalism, for example. Very same, similar arguments going on with publications closing down, like the NME. I mean, who would have ever imagined the NME would close down and, and, and now I think we're the only monthly magazine out there currently that you can buy on the shelves, can buy on the shelves yeah. so uh, that's 40 20 obviously um, so you know it's certainly expressed that Matt spoke about earlier we've just now got one newspaper and, and all that so I don't it's easy to be pessimistic about it but I do think in the bigger picture that if you can produce quality and you can find ways to actually I don't know sort of experiment a little bit with your copy and be imaginative then maybe as an industry in whatever we're talking about, obviously we're on about sport here, you can maybe get people back into the habit of, uh, of picking that stuff up off the shelves. Let's hope so anyway. I think Matt had a good point about it being cyclical and that obviously you've got um, the athletic, the most prominent thing, most prominent example of long-form reading. I'm just thinking back in terms of history that what you got when journalism, sports journalism first emerged in the 1880s, 1890s, all about the newspaper, match reports, what's going on in the match, and then you get sort of transfer news and all the stuff that we used to today. But you also got towards, you know, maybe 20 years later, um, 
the development of sports magazines, monthly magazines that had that in our terms would be long form magazines, and they're connected with, in a sense, um, for want of a better term, the intellectualisation of sport, where people start thinking, well, this is more important than just what's going on on the pitch. What about the broader, you know, how it relates to art, how it relates to society, and things like that? And you wonder whether that that type of process will occur now online, that as things move and you know people start to um, want a bit more than just what's going on in transfers or, and the rest of it, then that's where the space opens up for long form writing, which is really what the Athletic has tried to cash in on. Are we concerned about perhaps quality going forward? Obviously, not anyone sat on this table, but I think 20 years ago when I started in local radio, I was given a chance at a station in Wakefield. Now, if someone my age comes along today, they haven't got that chance because those radio stations don't exist anymore. So I was given a nice ground to learn on, to improve my skills with help from professionals, but today you can just set up a, a website, you can set up a, a podcast, Any, anyone's a broadcaster, anyone's a journalist these days, and there isn't that, I don't want to sound like gatekeepers or whatever, but there's not that kind of uh, quality control perhaps for uh, anyone starting out. No, there isn't. Um, and I think it's, I think that's even changed from when I came through, I mean, I'm what, 28 now, so I went to uni 10 years ago. Um, but I don't recall, and I might be wrong, I might be wrong, and the guys to my right may, may be able to comment better, but even even when I was, you know, going back 10 years, I don't remember there being as many websites writing about rugby league um, as in small independent that have just been set up. The problem is, as, as you said, anyone is a journalist, so it's, it's great in the sense that these websites give people a platform to, to chase what they want to do. But they haven't got the structures really to, to teach and educate and to, to try and improve that ultimately left to fend for themselves. And I think the other issue as well, and this is just a, a general observation across the web, and you can see this on, you know, even your, your really reputable websites such as a, a Guardian, as, a, as an example, um, proofreading is becoming less of a thing. It's all about time yeah. and just putting yeah. it out. Um, and, and I know this from our, from where I work that this is a, this is an issue. Uh, you, you're relying on on things like Grammarly, um, which are great, but but the, you know you, ultimately the, the the level of, of proofreading just isn't where it should be. Where, where it should be, not what you would like it to be. It's not where it should be. So generally speaking, the, the quality across the board isn't as high as it would, nowhere near as high as it would be in a newspaper where things are, and you know, there's always the odd shocker here and there in a newspaper, nowhere near as much as you would see on the web. Um, and it's a real issue, but it's, it's because, that, that reason is because it's all just, get it out now, a quick instant, people are more bothered about actually reading it than reading something that's well put together, if that makes sense. A bunch of things changing, Peter, obviously, Phil's mentioned taking photos, videos at press conferences. These are all new skills which weren't around when you just had to write. It's, it's adding more onto, your, uh, onto the journalist's work week in, week out. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose, yeah, potentially it is. I mean, the, the job I do now would be very different to, to the job Dave Hadfield did when he set out. But that's just, that's just part, I think, of the industry and the world and society evolving... Um, I don't think it's necessarily a problem, but you do you do have to be probably a little bit more multi-skilled. Yeah, we do videos, um, 
videos now and we do um, sometimes pictures although not so much at the evening post because we still have dedicated photographers that's something that's changed a lot over the years a lot of um, newspapers don't have photographic departments anymore which would have been unthinkable a few years ago but but we do and the evening post photographers stroke Yorkshire Post photographers are, are the best in the business I think that's a, a strength of Yorkshire Post newspapers is um, is the photographic department and we still have sub-editors as well who will a sub-editor is someone who will read through the copy and um, supposedly tidy it up and <laughs> take any mistakes out or whatever and also put the headline on and, um, and put it onto the page. We've still got people doing that for the newspaper, although not for the web. It, it tends to be the reporter himself or herself who will put headlines on and um, sometimes web, web copy doesn't get proofread. Um, I'd like to try to make sure mine does because you, if you write a thousand words on something, you're going to get one or two of the words wrong. It's just that it's just going to happen, especially if you're writing under under pressure of a deadline. But um, I'd like to think that the the quality control is is still there. But the job is is very different, yeah, to to how it was even when I started. I would imagine that's probably the case for Martin in his ten years. Yeah, absolutely. It has, it has changed. I think one, one big issue that, um, about j- journalism generally is that we keep mentioning the um, Athletic, which is a, a paid-for website, but people have got used to not paying to consume news, and um, obviously it costs to produce, because um, I get paid not very much, but I do. And, um, and we... We have to obviously find some way of, of generating revenue. So at the Evening Post now, there is what you call a paywall. So you can get five articles a week for free. And after that, um, the, there's a, a block put on the website. We're encouraging people to subscribe. It's, it's very cheap, a lot cheaper than buying the paper. And, and I think once we get more people subscribing to the news papers online then I think you might see a little bit of a, a move away from I wouldn't, I wouldn't say what we do is clickbait but from the the sort of things that are just designed to, to bring in numbers to the long form stuff that Matt and Tony have been talking about I think that might well come back yeah. when you get more people actually subscribing to the websites and, the, and generating the income I think, I think there is a move now towards retaining loyal customers or mm. loyal readers um, where before it's all been gaining, constant gain and growth. And I think now there is a bit of a, a attitude shift towards retention and, and making sure that your loyal readers become super loyal readers, as they're called. Um, and, and, I, and with you, I think as a result of that, there will be a, a slight transition back to having a bit more time to write the, the long form um, because there's not as pressure as much pressure on the instant click um, and I think that would be good for the industry because I think, I think the thing is as well if you ask the vast majority of journalists they would rather be able to be given the time to write the considered piece to write the longer piece um, I take much more enjoyment of that and I, I, I never get the time to write them ever but I'd much rather do that every day so I think I think, I think it's going slowly 
it's going back in the right direction in, in terms of instant long form. We're getting somewhere better towards a balance. I think that's the other thing that it's difficult to appreciate because we're right in the middle of it, that over the past 10 or 15 years there's been, thanks to the internet, mobile phones, all the rest of it, there's been this incredible change in society. It's changed so rapidly. And again, you're not, because it's happening around you, you're not necessarily aware of it until things like this. You can compare and contrast. And as you said, an equilibrium is found eventually. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it will be, you know, through stabilising subscribers or or whatever, or maybe it'll come later. But at some point, it will start to level out and uh, and a new normal will, will come. And I think not... Not, you can see this in the past as well. I think it's easy for us to sit here and think, oh, in the past it was always like, you know, you had the, the national papers, the daily papers, and that was the same forever. But sports journalism was always in the process of change anyway. So you went from, like, the 1890s and the 3,000 words on one match report to the tabloids that started to emerge in the 1920s and 30s and much shorter reports. And then in the 50s and 60s you had sports reporting. It was very much about... You know, personality, scandal, uh, which Eddie Waring was part of as well. He was one of the. He was actually one of the um, mm-hmm. one of the leaders of that type of journalism. So, sports journalism has always been in a process of change. Just that I think over the past, because of the tremendous technological and cultural change that's taken place over the past two decades, it's in, it's been in such a position of flux. It seems difficult for us. I mean, even a youngster like yourself, who's, who come from the sort of what it was like before. To imagine what it's going to be like, but you know maybe it is starting to balance itself out. I think, I think balance is the thing, isn't it? Because local newspapers, in particular, were founded on match reports. Um, that was the place that you went to, and, and you know if you're a historian, still is the place you go to to find out what was happening in that era. Um, you know, I, I tend to do match reports now that are read three or four, possibly five days later in a trade newspaper. You're writing maybe up to 1,500 words that you know are probably never going to be read. Because if somebody instantly wants to know what's happened, they can get it on the Thursday night that that game was played. They're not going to wait to see Monday morning's paper. The only thing they're going to look at is who have you made man of the match so they can disagree with you. Um, So that's one thing, the the balance between the instant, which the local newspaper used to actually be the provider of, to where do we find this long form. Um, And certainly one of the things that we tried to do when we set up 4020 was encourage new young journalists to be able to write long form about topics that they were invested in rather than news so that to get that feature driven um, element to it and whilst the opportunity still exists and we welcome it not that many have come through you can't see where the next Dave Hadfield is going to come from but I think there is a demand for it there is still this desire even amongst older people like me, um, to take time to read something, to, to buy something perhaps in print, to consume it over a week. Um, I, and I think the debate spills into club programmes as well. There's now a move to either not have them or put them online. But there's something about going to a game, bringing it back and spending a week reading it until the next one's produced. And what do you want to read in that? You don't want the news. You don't want what the, the player interview you could have read um, in the local newspaper, what you want is maybe something that's a bit different, an angle that uh, perhaps hasn't been written about before, a historical feature maybe uh, that relates what's happening today back to um, the past. Uh, and, and it is that finding that balance and then finding what, 
the local newspapers within that balance can provide that isn't elsewhere. Um, can I just ask, if there's a policy with match reports to sanitise them, because if you look at that, I spend a lot of time looking at the old newspapers, and I'm not suggesting we go back to this because they were cruel, they were vicious, uh, but you know, quite often we watch the TV and you see an incident, you think, oh, I'd like to read about that in the morning, and then in the morning it's not mentioned. You know, uh, we, we all see people have a good game and people have a bad game. And is there something that you, you know, you don't want to be cruel to players? I mean, you know, uh, Leeds and Hunsley in that 1892 cup final, I said, you know, um, Fred Wilkinson was absolutely wretched. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, that's all I said, all right, you know, and he did have a bad game. But, <laughs> <laughs> but if there was a refereeing decision, they would say, they, were in, they, were, they played Cardiff in uh, 1893 down in, in Cardiff. They got one try each in Cardiff converted it, so they won the game. The Cardiff try was a pass was three yards forward. Right? And the touch judge was overruled. The referee wanted the try. Leeds just stopped. It was so far forward, Leeds just stopped. They converted it. And Cardiff won. And that meant Cardiff hadn't lost the game for two years. You know, Leeds go down there with three forwards missing in a Yorkshire trial. I think you've got to let it, it go. Said, it, was about, <laughs> it said how difficult yeah. it is to win in Wales because this is what the referees do. And the reporter said, I interrogated the referee af afterwards, and the referee said, this is how we see it in Wales. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it might be to do with the sort of balance of power that has shifted from the press and the media, who used to be all powerful. To the clubs yeah. for the reason we're talking about with them all setting up their own websites now and doing their own news basically. So, if you're if you're a, a reporter, well, Pete again will be able to tell us better. If you're a reporter following a specific club for a paper, it's so much harder um, to to be you know very strongly critical because they they basically in control of their own stories. You know you yeah. you know we've, we've got these you know people starting to dive in to get like soccer. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem to be mentioned. We all watch it. You know, I watch it at the rugby club. Well, that, that would be one of the things that we do lose. If local papers do diminish in, um, in importance, that's one of the things we'll miss because I think, thinking back to the TNA work, which I grew up reading, at, at that time you had uh, correspondence for athletics, you had correspondence for Bradford City, Bradford Park Avenue. Bradford Northern, as was, yeah. um, Bradford and Bingley, Rugby Union, and so on and so forth, all the way through the sports. Mm. Um, and each of those knew that club inside out, but they were, they were fearless in being critical when it was required. I'm not saying Pete's not, because <laughs> it would be, I'm sure, if it needed to be. Um, but that sort of thing becomes less and less the more powerful the actual clubs get. They, can, you know, they don't really need the local paper as much as they used to do, because they're doing their own thing and it's all online. So it's difficult. There's a bit of uh, you know, a push and a pull about it. I think, I think part of the reason is that you said you watch it on television in the club. You'll get a more detailed view than most of the journalists. Yeah, so in the past, to, you in want to know what the journalist is the expert. You just like to yeah, know yeah. what. But, but in the past, what in the old days you had five of them. What was written in the paper was sacrosanct. Now people have got an opinion before you've even had the chance to see it at the ground, and you're reporting on it in a time scale where you haven't got a chance to go back and have a look at it. Uh, and, and now not only can they call um, the players idiots and everything, they can also call the journalists idiots yeah. and do yeah. <laughs> immediately if you say, if you say yeah, yeah, something yeah. that disagree. Yeah, go on, Pete. I, I, 
I'm not sure what sort of things that you're saying out don't get reported because I, I can't think of an incident in a match that had happened that I wouldn't, I wouldn't report if it was newsworthy. What sort of things are you, are well, you thinking of? Look, look, my brother's got dementia and I rang him up the day after the Warrington-Catalan game, right? And he said, hey, Pete, how did Charlie get that try we had offside? That's all I can remember, I can't remember anything. Mm. But you can remember that. Well, it's awful. They went to the video ref. We all looked at it. It's offside. No try. And he gives a try. And the then about a minute later, Barry McDermott says, "I think he was offside." <laughs> and another bloke, and the commentator team says, "I think you're right," but nobody says anything. Well, mm, there, there is a <laughs> there is a school of thought, as I've found out over the last month or so, in rugby league that nobody should mention match officials or the referees <laughs> and that they should be beyond beyond reproach um, so there may be an element of um, of that in there um, I've published something a month or so ago that was deemed or seen as being critical of, of certain match officials when it actually wasn't um, and I'm still getting abuse on social media about it now I had a couple of tweets today, actually, Is that about you? it. Would I do such a thing? <laughs> it's, it's not him. Um, so, I mean, s- some people in the sport, and including some reporters, think you shouldn't mention a referee ever at all. Um, if the, the problem... I think social, social media comes into this a little bit because what, what that's done is it means you get a much wider range of abuse than you ever used to. Um, if, I, if I say that um, I thought that Warrington's try against Leeds was a yard forward, I'll spend three days with my Twitter feed just jump, jammed up full of people from Warrington saying mm. you're utterly biased and you're a disgrace, and no, it wasn't. And then the following week, the same people will be complaining about a decision that went against against their team but I think I think that that comes into it to an extent um, just the local news now isn't just getting read by local people yeah, that's um, right. my stuff gets read by people who support 20, 20 years ago it would have got been read by West Yorkshire people now it gets read by yeah. Saints fans and Salford fans and Hull fans and, and everybody else, and they're not sh- sh- not slow to tell you no. their opinion. I mean, people, they say people are getting angry now, but you know they always got angry. And in the 1890s, uh, a referee who used to go down to the Leeds Parish Church matches used to take women's clothes and change into afterwards to get away after that being assaulted, mm-hmm. and they had a boat on their river to take the referee over I think, I think, I think it, can I just pick up on what are your points I'm going to try and whittle through them very quick Tony and Pete have answered a lot of them so you mentioned about then people were angry back then but it was harder for them to vent their anger because it wasn't as easy to communicate certainly not with a journalist so as an example Pete's talking there I've been very vocal actually recently about the rising play action in rugby league and you won't believe how many people I've got telling me that I'm wrong and that it's not true, including people within the governing body. But that's a different matter. So uh, I'm of the opinion that at the minute the, the, the uh, length of suspensions that are being given out to players is too long and excessive and over the top. 
when I put these thoughts out on Twitter, everyone disagrees with me. You, no, no, you've, we've got to look after the game, we've got to get it insured, protect the players, so on and so forth. On Saturday night, after the fight between the Wigan and the Catalan player, I put, that's the sort of nonsense we need to get rid of. That's fuggery. Get rid of it. All I've got is people, oh, you're soft. Ridiculous. <laughs> so I've put two different opinions out, and all you get is the people who disagree with you. You don't get the people who agree with you. So, so there's that. Um, I think another, another point on the, uh, going back to match reporting, I think now a lot, Tony picked up on this really well, there's so much more, so many more eyes on what you're writing and people willing to challenge you on it that for a lot of people it's not worth the time to be, to be hard. So as an example, if you were the local reporter for Hull, as an example, and Hull got whacked by Salford, you'd want to call them atrocious, diabolical, horrendous, whatever you want. The problem is if you do that, the head coach is annoyed with you. Uh, but more importantly, the media manager is annoyed with you. And that week, the media manager goes, we're well, not speaking to the players. And, and, also and they've got that power. As well. Yeah, and, they've, and they've, got that, they've got that power now where they can stop you doing that. So for them, if you write something that's, that's going to wind a club up, as a local reporter particularly, you know there's probably going to be some sanctions with it. So they might not give you an embargo for a release that's going out, but give it everyone else. So you miss out on that. They might say you can't speak to the players or the coach that week. So then, what you're filling your your copy with? So then you so then when you consider all of that, you go, well, actually, is it worth my time saying that he was rubbish? Is it worth me saying he's a, he were two out of ten this week? Because then, if you do, and because it now it's online and the players read it, the, the players read the player ratings, and I, you'll have it. How did I get a six this week? Honestly, I have players message. How did I get a six this week? So then you go and ask for an interview. No. So you've got all this to... It's a complete juggling act. And it's not... It's not it used to be power with the journalist. And it's not anymore. It's, it, so it's, it's really, really difficult to get that, to get that balance right. The, the other thing is that it was always um, in the uh, paper and ink days, it was always the headline that got you into trouble. Always. And of course the headline's a thing that most reporters don't write anyway. It's always <laughs> a sub-editor who does that. That always got you into trouble. Now, because everything's sort of reduced to headlines online, people immediately see are doing exactly that same thing. So they're getting wound up by the headline before they've even read it very often, as happened with Pete, his referee story. Mm. So people will see the bullet point, they get angry about that, and never mind the details, that doesn't matter, <laughs> and get straight into the route. So there's a, there's a lot of that going on around it as well. And the thing to remember about sports fans is they will always, always side with their club um, in anything, it doesn't matter how horrendous we're seeing Chelsea fans at the moment singing uh, Abramovich's name for example because he's associated with their club if, if it just so happened that Abramovich had taken over Spurs, all those same Chelsea supporters now would be criticising Spurs who would probably be cheering on Abramovich, that's just the way uh, a lot of sports pe- um, supporters are, there's not a lot of logic going on in it. And just, uh, just to give you a rugby league example of that just today uh, we put out a piece uh, of Ralph Rimmer talking about licensing franchising and he actually said he wasn't a fan of it and he didn't want it but the first reply within a minute of us putting the story out was a Lee Centurions fan going oh what a surprise to lose coming to Super League and he wants to close the door <laughs> so he hadn't read the piece he just read the headline and all the headline actually said was it gives his verdict on it doesn't it but instantly jumped to conclusions so that's also, you've got that audience you're working against as well. 
because they, they, they can't be bothered to actually read what you're saying. They just read the headline and make a judgment call. You've got to go. You've got to go. I can stay about <laughs> 15 more minutes. Um, it just reminded me when I got in trouble from Wakefield um, when I accurately quoted a player word for word on what he said and was told off by the club's media manager at the time. That was, that was quite a good story. <laughs> it doesn't surprise. The player shouldn't have said... I was treated like a piece of meat from my other club. But, but in the olden days, you see, your, your paper then would have would have told the club, he's, he's, um, the reporter is going to tell the truth, back off. Can't do that now. It's not as easy anyway. Well, is, that, is that the problem that we've got today? Is, and it's kind of been alluded to already. You have to not hide or bury stories, I think that's the wrong word, um, but there are things you wouldn't report on so you wouldn't upset a club, so you wouldn't lose your access to future stuff. I, I think... I, I th- no, I wouldn't. No, no. I don't think so. If, if the club want... You can afford, if you report on, on a club every day, um, every day of the year, or five, six days a week, every week, um, you're going to print things that they don't like. It's just bound to happen. Um, certainly the clubs I deal with are, the clubs themselves some individuals wouldn't be but the clubs themselves are, are pretty smart enough to realise that and I mean I've I know quite a lot of journalists who've been who've been had access denied and have been um, barred from press boxes and that sort of thing but it's never it's never happened to me yet um, it's, in, it, it's interesting though I think Tony might know about this. I think certainly in football, some clubs now are looking at not accrediting journalists. I think with Swindon. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's increasingly the case in football because they. Um, yeah, there's there's another club as well. Was Bre- Brentford? Have Brentford done a similar thing? Sure, but the, but yeah. So so the idea is if if you're a journalist and you say, "Can I have a ticket for?" This match, they'll say no. We'll provide the match report. Yeah. Um, and there was a famous occasion. I think it was Swindon, a couple of years ago when they got relegated, and the match report from the match they got relegated didn't mention the fact they'd been relegated, and that caused a huge, huge stink. Because obviously every every <coughs> newspaper journalist in the country read the report and all pointed out the fact that that it missed this quite pertinent point out. <laughs> and that's but that's what will happen if you get if you get clubs reporting on themselves. They, they are going to gloss over, gloss over the not so nice bits. Yeah, and I think because in it, for, for the club, that they they want their fans to become consumers and be loyal to the brand, and so you know they don't want neg- negative messages because it might stop you buying the third away strip for yeah. that season, things like that. And that's I think that's the other thing that's happened over the past twenty, thirty years is that as particularly football has become so much more commercialised and it's all about extracting the extra value from supporters the fact that it's easier to control the media feeds into that as well all be, in the sense the, um, the media people are becoming part of the commercial department part of the problem though is a bit like society the fans are more divided even within a particular club than they ever have been in the past so instead of relying on the media for information of what's happened whether it be um, particularly biased in terms of the referee in Wales at cost them the game. You now only need to lose one match and half of the supporter base wants the coach sacked. 
Yeah. How, how do you pitch your report that, that features those who are loyal to the club and will follow them uh, through thick and thin, and those who, because they didn't play well for half a game, want the entire uh, you know, players and coaching staff removed? It, that's the bit you've got to step back from. So it's not that you wouldn't criticise, it's that you've actually got to give probably more of an overview um, and be actually more balanced because you know that the extremes of either are going to be calling for things that are not realistic in any way whatsoever. Um, so I, I think that, again, for, for a journalist is why it's not necessarily pandering necessarily to an audience because the audience is a lot more fractured and fragmented than it's ever been before. Yeah, I think... I think, I think Victoria. The, the, sorry, I was going to say, the, the other point, um, which I think is really important, is that as a journalist, you've got to be willing to stick up for yourself as well, mm-hmm. which I think a lot don't want to do now. Um, I'm of the opinion that if I write something, I write something because I, I believe in it and I, I think it. Um, and sometimes that will upset people. But I think if you if you believe it and you think you're making valid points, you are making valid points. It's hard for them to to sulk with you because you just you know. I, I wrote some pretty scathing stuff about Wigan last year um, that didn't go down too well with Wigan, but it's it's truthfully like it, it's actually strengthened my relationship with that club because I think. And I don't know, you'd have to ask them, but they've seen that. I'm willing to write stuff that I think about them that's negative, and it works in their interest now to actually try and have a stronger relationship. So I think, I think you've you've got to be willing to show that you are you aren't scared to say the tough stuff at times as well. So I think, again, there's so many different ways you can look at it, and so many different ways you've got to get it right. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot harder this this lot than people think. Yeah. To be honest, in my experience, Wigan are the worst moaners. Fans. Oh, fans. Oh. If uh, Wigan, Wigan, good club, Wigan, but the fans. Is this going online? Uh, well, I'm quite, I'm quite prepared. I've, I've said this. live tweeting. I've said this. I've said this on the record in the past. Wigan fans will just complain about anything you write about them. I've not left us too much time to talk about the future, which I want to do. But there's a I think we've a oh, question for Victoria. Oh, you go first. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. If you could pick a time that you want to be a journalist in, which time would you pick? Because it sounds to me like modern world, yeah, it's all very great, but we put the drawback. We put the drawback. People are writing fake news. Yeah, what, what would you would you rather be now? It's so modern and instant, or time scale? Uh, people are writing fake news, but it's not like personally. I, I don't. I'm not. So it's not. I, I still. I think I can only speak for myself individually. But I, I see my job as to still report the news. I suppose in a way, I'm still a little bit old-fashioned. That my when I wake up in the morning, I want to go chase the actual story, where some want to go chase the cheap, easy clicks. Um, I pointed like that to you then. I, don't you know did, I, yeah, I, I didn't mean that. Um, so uh, it's so hard because I've not experienced the past. Um, the idea of having to speak my copy down the phone sounds horrendous to me. I can't think of anything worse. You've never done that? Yeah. Never, do, never done that. And I, I would never want to do that ever. You so, put coins in a box while you're ringing you're it. Doing it yeah. oh. Pete, Pete used to do it like this, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I want to wind, wind the phone up. up yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, on the other end of the scale, Bill, because you're the older one, I think. Is it? Possibly not the wisest, but uh, what, which time frame would you rather write in? 
1895 because I'd love to have worn a bowler hat. <laughs> you can still do that. Yeah. Yeah. Bring back probably, probably, probably looks slightly like more out of place than I normally do. I think I would have preferred the 1890s. I was going to say that period. I like the idea of having 3,000 words to do a match report with. Not, not against a deadline, perhaps, but just, just the creativity of that, I think, appeals to me. And also the bowler hats, for obvious reasons. Uh, but yeah, um, and also you, you got yourself a fancy nickname back then, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. That is you could have a Greek from Greek mythology, Titterus or something like that. Yeah, yeah. you could, yeah. Old Ebo. Why did Titterus come to you, mind? I hope it's because I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. 1958 to sometime before the 11th of May 1968. But that's just. That's just <laughs> <laughs> it was the 11th of May, wasn't it, Phil? I think. Yeah. You still bear a grudge, don't Definitely, definitely. People have written books and plays about it. Sorry, I don't look out to the audience because I get, I get sorry, intimidated by the amount of people. Just a couple of things, actually. I'd like to just point out that because you want to try being a woman on the internet talking about sport because you can even have a PhD in sport history and no one Well, I was trying to point <laughs> out that it's 2022, what a wonderful representative, mm. diverse <laughs> yeah, panel. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this might have gone off earlier. But, but even older but I, I think it, we, you know, to the rugby league panel, um, women in rugby league media is practically non-existent. Um, there's Lorraine Marsden, who's the new editor of Rugby League World, um, and, and obviously in in the punditry box now, Jodie Cunningham's doing a great job. Uh, as is Danica Prim. There's Julie Stott at a national level, but in terms of actual wide representation, there's, there's, it's not. Rugby League hasn't caught up in that regard yet. Definitely. Do you want to come on the podcast? There's <laughs> <laughs> a couple of interesting stories, though, because in terms of media management, clubs have always done that. So I was speaking to the wife of an ex player who then became a coach. Uh, we're talking about sort of 60s, 70s now. And she used to write his column for the, um, the club programme. He didn't do it, it was all her. And it was all her opinion. And she had a right battle with the club because there was a particular incident that had happened that she wanted to include in the programme because her husband was getting a lot of stick over this, this, this decision. Um, and the club vetoed it and she just said, well, then you're not having a column. And they, so they, they put it in. Um, there's also another woman at a paper that, a, a weekly paper that shall remain nameless, who said that when somebody used to read her the copy on a Sunday night, a particular journalist, She'd already written his column because she knew word for word exactly what he would say because every <laughs> single match was the same. Um, so I just, I'd just like to give a little shout out to those unnamed women who did a lot of work in terms of rugby league media from the past, and there are there are a lot of them, um, but they never get the credit that they deserve. Believe me, I was going to mention diversity. I was. I'm, I'm, I'm very. People. Well, we have one person who comments on our Apple podcast and hates the fact that sometimes we have women on, on the panel on, on the program. Yeah. What can you do and, and talk about diversity and issues and things? But it, but it is, it, it is a genuine issue in the press box. In, in I don't know about any other sport, but certainly in rugby league, when you go there, it is generally. I don't want to say middle-aged men because you're a young man, but, but it generally, is. generally middle-aged men. It is. It is. I mean, I, you know. When when I came through, I, I remember it. Everyone like, oh, we've got a baby in the clan. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm still really the baby in the clan. I'm 28 now, and like you do get you, you know you get them from a couple of the uh, niche websites, but 
they're, they're not coming. They're not, and then you and you look at the. There's been quite a shuffling in jobs in rugby league media at the minute, but it's still the same people that are being employed. They're just move. They're basically just switching jobs. It's not. No one knew is coming through. Um, so when you talk about the future of, of, of journalism, and I, I don't know if this is the same in all sports, we only talk about rugby league here, but you do look at it and go, where's it? You know, when when people start retiring, and it's not going to be a, a long, long, long way away. Where where are the next? Where's the next crop coming? And I don't know. I, I genu- genuinely don't know the answer. And you might have to employ them, so that, that's a bit of a concern for you. Well, one of them's just joined. One of one of our guys has just joined uh, Pete at the YP, so we are going to have to employ someone. And I don't know who we're going to get. We're going to we're going to find out. It's uh, but we had this conversation. Literally, this probably why I know <laughs> quite a bit about. I'm like, who are we going to employ? So it'll be interesting to see who applies for it. I think it was interesting what you said about sort of pushing back. In Hull, for the last 12-ish years, there was an incident where Hull FC banned Radio Humberside, and the, the and then Hull City did it only a couple of years ago, and the fan backlash because the lack of access um, that they got was so much that the clubs just had to back down. Um, but obviously, they've got that's the might of the BBC, but so many people were accessing, you know, match commentary and things, and and and, and the clubs just had to. The, the key is being fair. If if you are being fair, whether that's negative or positive, people can't argue. And and more often than not, we spoke a lot about the audience and, and fans. The you know the, the fans can see what's going on, and they you know people will always disagree to an extent. Phil's right. You know you have divided fan bases, but generally speaking, people people know what's going on, um, and they respect you if you tell it as it is. And, and the clubs don't, but if you if you're true to yourself and you back yourself, and they have to back down eventually because it's more damaging for them to actually try and put a fight up. So, yeah, and I don't think enough of that goes on anymore. I think I think it's maybe easier just to be safe, but I don't think that's good for the profession at all. Can I just put a word in for the players because I don't wouldn't want it to sound like when we say the club we mean the players because one of the the best things about covering rugby league is that the players are so open and approachable and honest. Um, in 30 odd years, the number of times a player said to me, "No, I'm not going to speak to you," just it literally it wouldn't it would be in single figures. Um, I've spoken to players in all sorts of situations after terrible defeats and, and all sorts of embarrassing fiascos, and and they are just they're normal people who will talk to you and who. Are, we're honest about what they do. I mean, not all of them are a great copy, but some of them are. We, one thing we suffer from from a sport is a lack of personalities. I think the personalities are there, but I think that we should do more to to promote them. And people like Jamie Jones Buchanan, who is just a remarkable individual and, and would be the household name if you played football or rugby union. Um, but the players are the players are really good to deal with. And I think that's worth worth mentioning. Um, obviously, most of the ones I speak to are at Leeds, but it's the same at all clubs. Um, rugby players just just don't they don't tend not to have an edge to them, um, and they are they are willing. They know you're doing a job, and they're willing to to do what they can to help. I think they're fantastic. The other interesting thing that's changed though is the pandemic, because the way of 
either speaking to the players directly or even in a press conference setting has changed. Um, and I don't know how much of it we're going to get back because there are still um, preview press conferences of most clubs that are on the Zoom, which means that you don't get the personal copy that you're looking for, you don't get the relationship. With, with 18 months to two years of not being able to speak directly to players in mix zones, you have lost some of that relationship with them. Um, and, and it's hard to build that back up because clubs themselves have taken it upon themselves to manage the news and the way in which you can get access to players. Most clubs now are just starting to allow you to have that access back, but a lot has been lost and it won't all be quite the same in the future. I don't think it'll be this hybrid mix of you can all go on a Zoom call and you can all have the same copy and those who type the fastest on social media will get the new gel out first and you'll get some access to players to actually get their personality over. But we lost the ability to tell the stories about players because we weren't speaking to them. I'm really passionate on this, actually, Phil, because I hate Zoom. And Zoom press conference are the worst because the, when you interview someone, you get the best copy out of them when you speak to them in a natural environment, when you have a conversation with them, basically. Sitting on Zoom with a bunch of people they probably don't know and asking them a bunch of questions you're not going to that's not a natural environment so you don't get you don't get the proper answers you don't get what they're really feeling I would much rather drive over to even Hull and and actually sit down and speak with nothing again it's just it's an awful drive isn't it it's not (laughs) Um, and sit down with with someone I wanted to speak to and have a conversation with them and actually do it rather than be on a Zoom call with them, I, and and I, that is a threat. I think I don't know what it's like in other sports. I'm hoping it's not the same. I hope it doesn't stay in rugby league, but it's become very awkward and very unnatural, um, and it's not it's not good for anyone. You know, during COVID, it was you needed it. Le- Leeds did a really good job with an app, so they they set the phone call up. You put a code in, and you, you were hooked onto the phone call with them. But even phone calls are not they're not the same. It is. Is actually sitting with someone and, and interviewing with them. It's on that day, the media manager doesn't have to hoover the, uh, the room up for when you come in. Mm. As, as happened at some clubs. Too many clubs. You, <laughs> yeah. The media managers do have a lot of work to do that has nothing to do with their jobs as well. Not to defend them all. Some people are like that. Most of You have to go. Now. Yes, I do need to go. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to me. Or boring you. <laughs> Oh, we've actually chaired it. We can sit, we can sit wherever we want, we've got an empty chair. Um, so we haven't got long left. Um, and before we ask for any questions, uh, the future, what, what is the future, Peter? What, what is going to happen next? <laughs> I mean, I don't know why I've asked you first, it's yeah. because you're there, unfortunately. Um, I, that, that's a real, I, I don't know, I haven't got a question. That's a, that's a fair enough answer. I, I would hope that There'll always be a place for local journalism, um, sports or otherwise. It's something I'm passionate about. Um, I think it's very important because you, it, it provides something that the nationals and other forms of media don't, don't do, the, the local angle on things. I would hope that it will continue. <coughs> I don't see any reason why it won't. It might be produced and consumed in different forms, obviously. Um, with more and more emphasis on, on online and on the net, but I think it will still have a, a place. 
its place and, and hopefully an important, be an important part of, of society, not just sport. Tony might be a better... Yeah, I'm a historian, um, so I look, pa- look back in, into the past. But I've got to say, I think, I think it's good news and bad news in terms of... I think that some of the things we've talked about tonight in terms of club control over stories, the influence of Twitter will probably mean, unfortunately, that the journalism that Pete does and has been historically what we've seen will probably wither because if you want to contact... If you're you're an ordinary fan, you want to contact with the players, well, you can follow them on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, you know, take a pick. Um, Stories about the club increasingly controlled by the club themselves. So I think... I wish I wasn't, but I think that the old-school journalism might struggle. On the other hand, I think that because clubs and uh, players, media managers, control more and more of that immediate stuff, and also, uh, yeah, um, and that the need for match reports is really declining because you can basically watch whatever match you want by and large, I think there will be a growth of long-form journalism, and I think there will be a... Uh, there'll be a market for quality writing that appeals to well, like people who are here, for example, um, probably in smaller numbers and mass circulation papers. But that that will come, and I think that will be increasingly important. And I think you can see. I mean, an example of that is is podcast. You know, people do tune in to listen to an hour long podcast, uh, which is quite a commitment. And I think eventually that will come through in the written form as well. That people will be you know, tune in to read Pete's 3,000 words on, uh, you know, whatever, whatever interesting subjects you want to talk about on Rugby League, because I think that, you know, people will develop, you know, good writers will develop a following. So I think, yeah, good and bad. Which means there must be a boom for 1420, because it's oh, yeah, the home of Not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's probably accurate, Tony's assessment there. I think that is the way that it will go. Um, I think people, the, the more the clubs do control the sport, the more there will be an, an audience for um, stuff that is not in their thrall. Um, <clears throat> yeah, certainly. Um, I think one of the things that, in rugby league terms, that we have as a sport in our favour is the sort of leanness of the game. It's, it's quite small comparatively compared to other ones, so people within it tend to know each other. Um, and that includes coaches, it includes players, for the moment at least. Uh, but for example, I spent a year with Batley writing a book with them, and the guy in charge there at the time, John Keir, the coach then, is somebody who really appreciates, in fact, you wrote his uh, biography with him, didn't you? Autobiography. Um, is somebody who really appreciates the value of uh, the media and what it can bring to a club once they're allowed behind closed doors. And, and so as, as the game becomes ever more uh, sanitised, I suppose, publicly, the, the more opportunity there will be for that sort of thing to actually get an audience, because then it will become unusual. Uh, so that's trying to look on the bright side as well. But, yeah, I think by and large, there's no doubt that journalism now as a whole is moving online, into the online world. I'm quite optimistic, because um, if the local press made a mistake, and not necessarily for sport, it was that it tried to become national, and a lot of it was covering I didn't used to buy the Yorkshire Evening Post to find out where the Queen had been that day. I wanted to know, you know, what happened down my street. 
And I think there is a move back to that. You can actually track that. Um, one, of, one of our columnists in 4020 is, is Gemma Carter, who's working on local newspapers in Saddleworth. And it's going back to ultra-local news. And it's a part digital offering, but it's actually a physical one as well. And their circulation is booming. Now, if you start adding sport into that, I think there is a way of saying, particularly with a sport like rugby league, which is geographically specific, there will be something to read at a local level that you're never going to get at a national level. So there is a demand there. Um, I think it's how you tailor it, um, where you see your audience. And on the back of that, you would hope that there is going to be room for more opinion pieces, because I think that's what we've lost. You know, I used to love buying the Yorkshire Post on a Friday to read John Ledger's column because it was acerbic, um, and, it, and it wasn't kowtowing to authority. If something needed to be said, he would say it. We, we haven't really got that at the moment. Um, I think there, there is a licence to write a column about what's happening that week in the game, which might be important, but, but there is still a demand and a, and, and a need for people talking perhaps on a wider canvas. So that will come back. Um, I think that... that is something that only really the local press can do really, really well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that if it tails itself to its market, there will be a return to the values of why the local is so important. It would be interesting to see John Ledger now how he would be treated on Twitter, don't you think, at his height? Mm. <laughs> that would be fascinating. I think he would come in for a bit of stick, to be honest, because that's how it is now. Wouldn't stop it. But you've got, to, you know, as a, as, a, as a journalist, you've got to have the courage of your convictions and stand up to that sort of thing, say what you think, hopefully with a bit of humour mixed in with it, a bit of self-deprecation, whatever. Um, and, you know, that's I find that endlessly entertaining. I love to read people I disagree with. I don't have to just... How boring to just only read things with, from people who you agree with. That's just dull. You want, you want something to fall out with and argue with, and um, so long may that continue. Don't like doing it. Don't write your deep into it. Because people would craft a letter back to him for the following Friday, disagreeing where he wrote yeah. about that previously. Yeah, yeah. My father was an expert at arguing. <laughs> <laughs> he would write everything every three or four days to make sure he got it through the newspaper. And, and whilst the way of doing that may change, I still think there's a need for that. And that is where local press can service that need. You're not going to get that. Letters to the Guardian, so much anymore. You used, you used to get some real um, stars in the readership as well, didn't you? And listenership. Do you, re- do you remember yeah. Kevin? Who used yeah. To yeah. Kevin yeah. McGuire yeah. yeah. from Battle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You actually used to have stars at, at, yeah. at the public responding to it. <laughs> but the great old days when you used to have people phone up with local radio phones with opinions on things. It's not just about you know, political topics we won't mention. I mean, it's a bit like question time here, I guess now. Um, I'll, I'll be Robin Day. Anyone got any more things they'd like to ask us before we uh, close up proceedings? Yeah, no, wonderful. <laughs> Phil, Tony, can I can I have a name change in the magazine? Can I have one of these like Roman stroke Greek things? What for you? You mean your byline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a Greek high, uh, Egyptian high. Sure, yeah. If you can come up with one, yeah. What should we call it? Hercules. What? Icarus. Icarus. <laughs> That's meaningful, isn't it? Orville. Orville. Can't fly. <laughs> um, the Greek god of what? <laughs> I can't swim, I can't fly. Thank you for coming. Um, you it's, it's been nice to see you all, even though I've not looked at you throughout the proceedings. Phil Kaplan, as ever, Tony Hannon, Professor Tony Collins, Peter Smith, 
Thank you for uh, coming and uh, hopefully you enjoyed tonight. Okay. Thank you.